1: The Economist Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Arguably the conflict in Ukraine of today started not two years, but a decade ago. Our producer heads to Kyiv, marking the anniversary of what became known as the Revolution of Dignity by speaking to those whose lives were touched by it. And in late 20th century Britain, something profound changed about obituaries. Instead of the somber business of merely marking deaths, they began to chronicle colorful lives, even injecting a bit of gallows humor. First up, though. If you lived on the moon, stay with me here. It would seem that recently, a whole lot of visitors were dropping in.
2: Four, three, two, one, ignition, and liftoff. Go SpaceX, go IM1, and the Odysseus lunar lander.
1: This week, another one is coming. Two ton lander called Odysseus, built by Intuitive Machines, a private American firm. It took off atop a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket late last week. Odysseus should come gently to rest on the moon's surface. Stress on the should.
0: The Paragon lunar lander headed back to Earth today. Its mission to touch down on the moon failed last week due to a leak on the board that spacecraft.
2: Uh, We could not complete. The on the lunar surface.
1: See, all those visitors to the moon are having a hard time coming down softly. Five robotic landers have attempted it in the past year, but only two succeeded, from Japan's and India's national space agencies.
2: <laughs>
1: but a Russian probe crashed and two private missions by Japanese and American companies also failed. Odysseus wants to notch up another success, which would be the first by a private company, and the first soft landing by an American-made spacecraft since five decades ago, when the soft landing brought humans. America would like to do that again, but the technology and the business of space
2: have changed. Landing a robotic spacecraft on the moon is really hard. Tom Standage is a deputy editor at The Economist. It's not like you've got a pilot there who can control the spacecraft. It's too far away to do remote control, so it's got to figure it all out for itself. There's an awful lot of things that have to go right for it to work, and that also means there's an awful lot that can go wrong. And with all that in mind, then, what is the plan for this latest mission? This latest mission is meant to touch down near the South Pole of the Moon, which is an interesting place because it's where you might want to put a permanent human base. And there might also be interesting stuff lying around, like ice, which you could use for fuel or to make oxygen or whatever. So this is one of a series of unmanned landings that is meant to scout out the area in preparation for the astronauts showing up in a couple of years' time. Okay, and so what's actually on board this thing? Well, what's interesting about this lander is that it's a private lander. So it's got six payloads from NASA, and then it's got six private payloads. So if you look at what NASA's got on the lander, they're essentially looking at things that will help them figure out things that they need to know for future journeys by astronauts. For example, how much of a dust cloud gets stirred up When this lander touches down, because if you want to have a permanent base and you've got things taking off and landing all the time, you need to know about that. And what I thought was most interesting is one of the things you might do from a permanent base, or indeed if you just put a robot down near the South Pole, is astronomy, and in particular radio astronomy. And so one of the things they want to measure is what's it like trying to do radio astronomy? How much of the radio chatter from the Earth is blocked out? So there's an experiment that's going to look into all of that as well.
1: So you say NASA has some stuff on there, but private companies have some stuff on there. Why isn't
2: this a NASA project in its entirety? Well, that's kind of the whole point of this, which is to test this new model that NASA has called Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLIPS. And the idea is that if NASA was doing this themselves, it would cost 500 million to maybe a billion dollars to build the spacecraft, the lander, take it to the moon with all the stuff. And NASA, in this case, is paying about $100 million to take the same stuff to the moon. It's paying it to a private company. And the difference is that when NASA builds and operates its own spacecraft, it has an incredibly low tolerance for risk. It's not allowed to get it wrong. And so that makes the process slower and more expensive and more bureaucratic, but should make it more reliable. And what's happening with the CLIPS program is that the various private companies that have been contracted to fly stuff to the moon. And they, in turn, buy the launch services from people like SpaceX. But they build these landers, and they could do it at a fraction of the price. But although the price is lower, the risk is much higher. So NASA reckons that about half of these things are probably going to fail. But if you think about it, you're paying $100 million to get stuff to the moon instead of, say, 500 to a billion, and half of them fail. Then, in effect, you're paying $200 million for each one. That's still much, much cheaper. So that's the idea, that the private sector is more innovative, it can cut costs, it can move faster, and NASA can benefit from that to get things it wants done. And at the same time, it also catalyses a new industry and potentially new services, new options for private companies to do things on the moon. And we're seeing the beginnings of that with this lander, which has got six payloads from private buyers instead of from NASA. My favourite one is a camera called Eagle Cam, and it will be chucked out of the lander shortly before it touches down so that it can film its own descent. If all that works, we should get some really quite spectacular images of the craft landing or indeed crashing.
1: Launching a second craft just to take a selfie. Have, Have these people not heard of a selfie stick?
2: Well, it's actually a selfie CubeSat. So it's built on a CubeSat design. So yeah, it's just kind of getting fired out the side (laughs) shortly (laughs) beforehand. And it's got cameras on all sides of the cube, I think, so that one of them at least will be pointing in the right direction. But we'll see how it goes. But this is the kind of crazy experimentation that private companies will bring to space exploration. Would NASA have tried something that silly? I don't know, but it should be quite fun.
1: But we already know it's extremely hard to land a robotic craft on the moon, as you say. And you're saying that NASA has built a model that's even, on average, less likely to succeed. So what should we expect from Odysseus?
2: Well, I'm hoping Odysseus will succeed where the previous attempt to do this in January failed. And that was a lander called Peregrine that was built by a different American startup called Astrobotic. And it didn't even get to the moon. So far, things have been going a lot better for Odysseus. It's on its way. It's sent pictures back. Everything seems to be checking out and working. Of course, that means that the hardest part of all is still to come, which is the landing. So there's various ways that landings can go wrong, and we've seen them over the years. In fact, we've seen them in the past 12 months. The Russian probe Luna 25, which is the first time Russia has tried to send anything to the moon since the Soviet period, went splat into the moon. They got the orbit wrong when they were adjusting the orbit to get ready for landing. And then we had these two private missions that both failed. Hakuto-R, which was the Japanese one, had a problem as it was coming into land. The software was confused by the lip of a large crater, close to the landing site and thought it was much closer to the ground than it was and so it kind of went into this slow descent onto the ground mode and in fact the ground was five kilometers beneath it and it ran out of fuel and crashed and then we had peregrine which had this problem even on the way to the moon so it didn't even get to attempt to make a landing and that was seemingly to do with a stuck valve and that meant that a tank overpressurized and went pop but you also have this nice example from the slim lander the japanese one that was meant to land on its side but it lost a rocket nozzle just as it was landing and its software compensated but it ended up tipping onto its nose if the software is clever enough it can sometimes compensate for the hardware failings and the software on Odysseus does look like it's pretty clever so yeah I think they've looked very closely at all the ways things have gone wrong in the past and are trying very very hard to avoid them but we'll see. So America is clearly changing
1: the way it wants to do this in its bid to to get back to the moon in a big way. But there seems also to be a real international scramble to get to the moon in various ways.
2: Yes, that's true. And in part, it's rather like the previous dash for the moon was a sort of Cold War thing. And it was a way for countries to show their technological prowess. And we're seeing a lot of that now. So there is a sort of political grandstanding part of this. But the other part of it is that launching things into space has got a lot cheaper And this is because of the development of reusable rockets by SpaceX. Therefore, that brings the cost of sending things to the moon down as well. And that's one of the things that has made CLIPS possible, this new model for NASA. But it also means that other countries and other companies can send things to the moon if they want to on these cheaper american rockets as well they're not all doing that but it does mean that the barrier to entry as it were if you want to send things to the moon is lower than it was and then the other thing is that america has said it wants to put people back on the moon and china wants to put people on the moon and so there is something of a space race going on as well and these robotic missions are meant to pave the way for that
1: Well, if there is so much of this going on and and failures mean a lot less, I suppose, than they used to, then this week's mission is a big
2: deal or it is not? Well, it's potentially the first time that a private vehicle touches down on the moon. That's never happened before. And if it works and it validates the whole CLIPS model, then we can expect an awful lot more of this to happen. In fact, there are lots of other CLIPS missions lined up behind this one, even if this one fails. It would also be the first time that an American-built vehicle has soft-landed on the Moon since 1972, since the Apollo 17 mission, the last mission that took astronauts to the surface of the Moon. So there's been a very, very long period of dormancy, and it would be reawakening America's desire to do stuff on the Moon. So I think for both of those reasons, this is a mission that's really worth watching.
1: Tom, thanks very much
2: for your time. Thank you.
3: This week not only marks the two-year anniversary of the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also the 10-year anniversary of the bloody revolution that Ukrainians fought right here on the streets of Kiev against their own government.
1: Sarah Lornyuk is a senior producer on the intelligence and has been traveling in Ukraine ahead of the anniversary.
3: The protests were initially known as Euromaidan before being renamed the Revolution of Dignity. If you stand in Kiev's central square known as Maidan... There are markers of modern Ukrainian history everywhere you look. Standing tall above the square is the Independence Monument, erected to mark the establishment of Ukraine as an independent nation in 1991. And to the right, a field full of flags, each marking a Ukrainian life lost in the country's ongoing war with Russia. It is one of those focal points that ties together the events of 2014 with what's happening now. And it's where I meet Igor Pochivelo, the General Director of the National Museum of the Revolution of Dignity.
4: But since Ukraine regained its independence in 1991, everything started to change. And this uh, square, Maidan, changed its appearance and uh, changed its symbolism and identity. And uh, in Ukraine, uh, this is uh, one of the most important political, cultural and social centers.
3: The Revolution of Dignity wasn't the first held in the square following independence. In 2004, there was the Orange Revolution. Ukrainians took to the streets following an election rigged in favor of a pro-Russian candidate. The protests resulted in the vote being overturned and promises of cleaner politics followed. But those promises were broken. And 10 years later, Ukrainians once again came together in Maidan. The revolution of dignity was spurred by an announcement in late 2013. Russian-backed President Viktor Yanukovych said he was abandoning Ukraine's proposed agreement with the EU in favor of deepening ties with Russia. It outraged many Ukrainians who'd hoped to see their country move towards a more modern West rather than the East. Initially, protesters occupied the square peacefully. But in late November, demonstrators had their first major run-in with the police, known as Berkut.
4: But this only spurred more people to join them. When they were beaten brutally by police next day, the 1st of December, almost one million people came to support. Looking at the square now, busy with traffic,
3: those scenes are hard to imagine. But Mr. Pochevelo remembers it all
4: vividly. So it's a huge... Huge space was controlled by the protesters, hundreds of tents.
3: It became like a city.
4: Exactly, a protest city. And they decorated the space by flags, slogans. So many people supported, especially on, uh, on Sundays. There was so-called vicha. Vicha, this is a people gathering. Yeah. When 200, 300, 500,000 people uh, gathered. Every Sunday. Almost every Sunday and uh, it was and you can feel really the mood the spirit of this uh, space of freedom and simultaneously a lot of um, public initiatives appeared to support the tent city you need a lot of a lot of efforts um, uh, food warm uh, because it was quite cold in that period it was uh, the winter and uh, but not only physical uh, sustaining but also some, for example, communication efforts. The post of Maidan appeared as a public initiative. Some young
3: people But in early 2014, the situation escalated, and there was once again violence on the streets of Kiev. But this time, it was even more devastating. <laughs> Citizens were pitted against Birkut and the government. Unarmed protesters, gunned down in the streets
2: by the riot police, who were retreating from Kiev's Maidan square. By the end of the day, more than 50 people were dead, including three policemen.
4: The city began to resemble a war zone. And the same night, uh, the trade union building was set on fire. The headquarters of the Stab Sprotev of Resistance. The
3: violence ended with the departure of then-President Yanukovych from Ukraine. Mr. Yanukovych refused to step down, but MPs voted to oust him and hold spring elections. By the time the dust settled, more than 100 protesters had been killed, half of them on a single day, February 20th.
4: The youngest was 17, the oldest 82. Those people became known as the heavenly hundred. They came to, to Maidan not for politicians, not for parties, but for the future of
3: Ukraine. The last protester to be killed on the 20th of February was a man named Volodymyr Melnychuk. Just a few hundred meters away on Institutska Street, where so much of the violence took place, a photo of Mr. Melnichuk hangs on a tree. This is where he died. His mother remembers how he was on the phone with her when he was shot by a sniper in a nearby building. He thought the violence was over. He'd been on his way home and she heard the gunshots through the phone. Melnychuk's mother and stepfather placed flowers next to their son's face, first at the tree and then at the national memorial to mark the anniversary. (laughs) His stepfather, in military fatigues, despite his age, continues to serve in Ukraine's territorial defense force, continuing the fight that began in 2014. Each year, February 20th, marks the celebration of the sacrifice made by the Heavenly Hundred. But Mr. Pochevelo says it's taken time for the impact of their deaths to be
4: properly understood. And now, for us, we position Heavenly Hundred heroes as the first heroes of the Russian-Ukrainian war, because it's quite clear for us today that the Russia committed the first act of aggression during the Maidan. They influenced the decision of, of Ukrainian, at that time,
3: government. This week, people gathered in squares across Ukraine to mark the Revolution of Dignity, from Mykolaiv to Lviv to Kharkiv. Even for those not caught up in the protests a decade ago, the anniversary is important to mark. Dmitry Dotsenko was studying in the east of Ukraine in 2014. Now, as an artist in Kyiv, he's created an enormous two-canvas painting that reflects this chapter of Ukrainian history. So
5: it's like two meters height and four...
3: And he co-curated an anniversary art exhibit that opens today. The history of this square hangs heavy for him.
5: The the more time has gone, the more... Personally, I can understand that uh, everything is...
3: The aerial alarm interrupts our conversation, driving home the proximity of Ukraine's current threat. We walk up the hill from Maidan to the National Memorial of the Heavenly Hundred, and he tells me why it's so important to keep their memories alive.
5: I think it's a sign of will of Ukrainians to have their own independent country. And these people, they symbolize that there are many people who were and who are ready to to sacrifice their lives for this and it's not some cinema or a film show it's not uh, like computer game It's the reality proof that Ukraine it's not Russia it's another country
3: because of the sacrifice that Ukrainians are willing to make
5: yes the the Ukrainians are ready to fight for their country because any declaration is not worth any words on the paper if uh, the people are not ready to, uh, to prove this.
3: From these marble stones showing the faces of the heavenly hundred, to the nearby flags flapping in the wind, marking the Ukrainian lives lost since the invasion. Ukrainians have proven again and again that they are absolutely willing to fight and die for democracy and a liberal society. The question now is whether or not the rest of the world will continue to back them.
1: listener probably remember this, but back in November, on the subscriber-only Weekend Intelligence, we heard the story of Oleg, a man who lived in eastern Ukraine when the Maidan protests became the revolution of dignity, which in turn led to Russia seizing Crimea and the Donbass region, where Oleg lived. Now, after two stints in prison for daring to speak up about the invaders, Oleg lives in a hut in the wilderness, scavenging for his daily bread. It's one of those stories where one person's suffering is emblematic of a whole people's suffering. And I encourage you to scroll back through the feed to November to find it. It's called The Man in the Forest. If you're not already signed up to Economist Podcasts Plus, now's a great time. Annual subscriptions are
4: half price. Just Google it.
6: They are dying out. Last month, the last surviving member of the original SAS died. A year or so ago, the last Dambuster pilot died. Two years before that, the last Battle of Britain Spitfire Ace did.
1: Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist.
6: Britain's finest hour has long since passed. Now those who fought in it are passing too. Those who never surrendered are now surrendering. And as they go... Britain must face the loss not only of identity and a direct connection to history, but also, somewhat less seriously, of a niche literary genre. That of the late 20th century obituary. That this genre appeared at all was something of a surprise. For decades, obituaries had served readers with fresh corpses and with stale prose. They'd given them respectable judges, unimpeachable wives, and phrases in the, "'She passed away peacefully.'" and heartfelt tributes poured in vain. Then, in the late 20th century, something changed. Led by Hugh Massingbird, an obituaries editor at the Daily Telegraph, the British press suddenly saw the possibility of chronicling colourful lives in colourful ways. So suddenly, obituaries started to offer characters such as Brigadier Slasher Somerset, and phrases such as, He tried slithering along a sewer, and He escaped by jumping from a prisoner of war train and he died after setting fire to his bed, and the footman was found guilty of murder. All were notably lacking in heartfelt tributes. The causes of this change are complex. History is an obvious one. Wars and revolutions may offer death on an unprecedented scale, but they also offer life on it too. It would be hard to imagine any century other than the 20th That could have offered The Undertaker one Lady Muriel who spent much of her life rescuing English governesses stranded in Russia, or Field Marshal Sir Gerald Templer who was injured by a looted grand piano which had fallen from a passing truck onto his car, and of course the redoubtable Major General Eric Harrison who, having given distinguished service in both world wars, also found time to be a representative rugby player, an Olympic athlete, a legendary rider to hounds, and a pig sticker. Which if you haven't done it recently, involves hunting a pig with a stick. LinkedIn today is lamentably low on pig stickers. Class is another reason for the trend. There are many criticisms to be made of the outmoded, unjust, elitist English aristocracy, but dullness is not one of them. These obituaries are filled with the sort of names: Slasher, Tishy cocky, loppy and pudding that signify only the properly posh or possibly Labradors and the sort of lives that wouldn't disgrace the pages of War or Woodhouse. So the reader is introduced to Lord de Clifford, a colonel and door-to-door dog food salesman, Baroness Panonica de Konigswater, an aviatrix who painted portraits in milk, Scotch whisky and scent, and Dame Violet, who we learn was mountainously large and spoke Arabic in a Bedouin dialect. All the best people do. The class system not only allowed such people the time to paint, but a broad canvas on which to do so. Countries, even empires, were administered and created by mere handfuls of people in this period. And so these obituaries are duly filled with sentences of the her mother helped to found Czechoslovakia sort. And in the new generation of obituarists, these idiosyncratic characters now had their idiosyncratic chroniclers. In an era in which people begin to painstakingly climb the career ladder at school, it's fascinating to read of people such as the third Lord Moynihan, bongo drummer, confidence trickster, brothel keeper, for whom the word career seems to have been more verb than noun. And in an era that frets over microaggressions, it's fascinating to read about those who coped stoically with the macro kind. Phrases such as, the bullet passed through his chest and killed the man behind, pepper these reviews like shot. While the general tone is droll, they are pierced with lines, such as His two other sons were killed, one at Monte Cassino, that hint at the kind of pain no pen can capture. And that's perhaps why obiturists don't even bother trying to. When confronted with the almost unbearable tragedy of the 20th century, its obiturists turned instead to comedy. Because one cannot be sure of happiness in life. One can at least be entertained. Or, as one 98-year-old dowager countess put it as she entered her final year, she was looking forward to her 99th birthday as, that will be interesting. And then she said she planned to look forward to her 100th. But, she also added, I may die before that, and that will be very interesting too.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024, we'll see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.